So to, to kick off on the acquisition front, we're, we're, expect, we're experiencing a, a price correction. Uh, so assets are trading at a discount to replacement cost in, in roughly 20, 25% below peak values in 2022. And, and just for example, this week, we're, we're offering on um, a deal in Raleigh, Raleigh, North Carolina, and that asset is at below 200 a door. They're building for 225, give or take. And um, one of our competitors, actually the most direct comparable product is another um, mid 2000 vintage deal, similar rent structure, similar NOI margins. Um, and that deal traded for 276 a door, which is what we're underwriting at exit. So, so just goes to show um, the, the basis in which we can buy deals at today and, and other investors, what they can look at. And if, if you're a long-term player, which, which most people are in the real estate space, um, and you you structure the deal accordingly, you can buy a great asset at, at today's pricing. Um, Let's get ready to scale. Hey guys, welcome to yet another episode of Ready to Scale. I am your co-host, Jeanette Friedrich, joined by our other co-host, which is Ellie Perlman, and of course, Ryan Razaleski, all part of the Blue Lake Capital team. Today, we are going to be talking about the current pains and potential gains for multifamily in 2024. Uh, to start off with, I think something that would be really helpful for everyone is to know uh, what has been going on recently. In particular, there was just a event uh, called the NMHC conference, and Ryan was there to attend and has some key takeaways to uh, get us started. Thanks, Jeanette. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great segue to to kind of open up the conversation because for for all of you that that don't know NMHC. Um, National Multifamily Housing Council's annual conference. So everybody that's in rental housing, uh, whether it's brokers, insurance agents, buyers, sellers, um, uh, equity partners, everybody's at this conference. And it, it's a way to kick off the year and, and share feedback, compare notes. Um, and there were a lot of takeaways that there were um, what I'd say is competing perspectives on on what the, the state of the market looks like and, and what 2024 is, is going to bring. But um, kind of in aggregate, I'll, I'll summarize. So it, investors renewed their optimism for 2024, um, which predominantly was on the premise that feds will cut rates um, multiple times potentially in the back half of the year. However, the, there's also another side of the equation thinking, you know, I, I don't think that's that's the, the current state of the markets and the CPI report that came out this morning can will su will suggest that narrative and, and go against the feds cutting rates. I mean, um, you saw a 30 basis point increase in the CPI month over month and annualized just over 3%, uh, which was really read, led by housing costs, um, medical costs, and um, transportation were, were kind of in the highlight. But um, in, in the S&P touched uh, 5,000 points for the first time um, on record in, in advance of this report, and it's still hovering just, just sub 5,000. So um, we still have a strong economy, a relatively hot labor market, and inflation is still here. So we'll see what happens. So that, that was kind of two, two takeaways or two narratives, rather, that um, it, it was great to kind of flesh out and hear other people's perspective. Um, another common theme was distressed deals. 
did not come to market at the at the slightest compared to what investors anticipated in 2023. Um, and, and the mounting floating rate cap and, and loan maturities um, are expected to put pressure on lenders and, and inevitably grow with the mentality of we're kicking the can down the road. Um, but on a good note is that there's a perceived bottoming of asset values, whether it's here today um, or whether it's on the very near term horizon. So a lot of investors are thinking there's only one way to go from here, which is up, which is obviously a favorable, optimistic um, perspective. And sellers expect institutional capital and, and more liquidity um, is going to fuel transaction volume in the second half of this year. And we've been talking about that for a while. Um, and now it's just not the time to sell. Brokers are, are inundated with um, BOVs, but the, the, only a fraction of them are going to be coming to market in the first half of this year. Um, and from an operational perspective, right, explain to the um, to the audience what BOVs are for those of you uh, who don't know what that is. Certainly, it's it, BOV is short for uh, brokers' opinion of value. They're they're the ones that. Um, see the most transactions in their specific market because they're they're known as market experts. So if a group wants to potentially see what the value of their asset is um, and, and not do a back of the envelope or an in internal model, let, let's go out to the specialists in the market and where they believe they can transact on this deal. So um, that's typically the first step in the disposition process is going out to um, typically two, maybe even three BOVs, different brokerage groups, just to see uh, what what is this asset valued at today, and and where do they think their clients would transact? And they'll typically give you a range, a low strike price, and then a, a reach. So there's really three different components, and they don't they don't uh, kind of deviate that much, but it's it's a good indication of this is your 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 range in which we we believe this can transact, whether it be on the lower end, higher end, or right where we we believe. Um, and then going back, so two two other takeaways is. From an operational perspective, um, rent growth will slow in 2024, not not become negative in terms of lease trade outs unless somebody's really buying occupancy. Um, that's not necessarily warranted, but even through the first half of 2025, and, and that's just fundamental supply and demand. So as these new units come online and become absorbed, um, we'll, we'll see that pressure kind of alleviate and, and it'll be more of a, um, a tailwind. And then the, the last point is 2025 and 2026 is still um, a, a positive projection. And it's going to be a big year for rent growth, um, vacancy improvements, and overall transaction volume is, is expected to recover um, because inflation has really driven replacement costs higher. New construction is, is nearly frozen with the cost of debt. And there's going to be relatively new minimal new supply delivered. Um, and demand for rental housing is still going to expand because we're, we're in an undersupplied economy. So those those were the key takeaways with the exception of one more. Um, maybe even the most important is San Diego is a beautiful place and nobody wanted to go home. That That's uh, probably the, the number one topic of conversation, especially for those that have never visited San Diego before. <laughs> well, very interesting. And, you know, to add on to everything that you just shared with us, uh, you know, I can definitely agree with you that investor sentiment is starting to become more optimistic. Um, it's been very interesting. I've really seen just a significant stirring, if you will, um, in just maybe the last probably four weeks, I think. Uh, you know, between from investors, you know, really starting to get more uh, eager for deal flow, wanting to know what's coming up in the pipeline. 
And, uh, you know, it, it, it is reassuring and, you know, good to see that investors have weathered what was, you know, a pretty challenging year being 2023, but they have not lost confidence in real estate investing as a whole, despite how terrible the media has been making things look, right? And so that's one of the elephants that we were going to talk about today is, you know, let's be very candid and let's talk about what, you know, people are seeing in the media. And it seems like it's horribly negative, like multifamilies just falling apart, like office has been just decimated. And, you know, it's really an exaggeration that the media has played up a lot that has scared some investors. But, you know, now that the headlines have kind of doled out a little bit, you know, I'm starting to see very sophisticated investors, you know, understanding that, you know, that it's all cyclical and they are eager and hungry for their next investments, which I think is a great thing to see. But I did want to make sure that we talk about that. So, Ellie, what is your perspective about everything that you're seeing in the media? Yeah, you know, I think um, it's really interesting because there's definitely pain out there. There are some groups um, that lost assets, lost investors' money. It's not that this hasn't happened, but it hasn't happened to the extent that um, investor expected. So I want to uh, talk about what is what is happening to some investors and then what the media is you know portraying and what it what the truth is what is actually happening and that's what we're doing here the goal of us getting together and talking um and recording this conversation is essentially to show investor talk to them about what what we see from you know kind of uh open the door to an operations of um a multifamily syndicator operator um, and tell you how things really are, what is really going on. And so there, the, the pain is there, there is some pain there, meaning there's some investors that, uh, we're talking with me, we're talking, um, they've been talking with Jeanette and, and they essentially express their concern mainly because, um, some of the other investments that they've you know, that they have with other sponsor, they have capital calls, which means, um, you know, the sponsors are asking for more money in order to keep the investment afloat, or um, they've just, you know, they, they lost their investment. And that can be very scary for investors that haven't gone through any cycles. And many investors, um, the last decade, which has been really good for real estate and very good, especially for multifamily that's the first time that they are investing and all they know is the way up. And it's the first time that they are actually becoming sophisticated because um, they're going through a different part of the cycle and they're really learning um, the, the, the dark side of the risk. The bright side of the risk is when things are great and you, you think you can get 15% IR and you get 30 or 40 or 50 percent that's the bright side of the risk because the risk the risk that you thought you were or you understood that you were taking didn't really come to fruition and the opposite happened now the dark side of the risk is when the worst it's basically the worst case scenario and it does happen and with real estate you know you can't you can't win every single time that's why you're getting compensated for the ability and the willingness to take the risk. So the pain is definitely there. Um, and that really makes some investors or it used to make them very, you know, 
scared, concerned. Okay, is this going to happen with all of my investments? Um, am I going to lose, you know, a significant portion of the, you know, my real estate investment? So we definitely understand um, that concern. And then you have the media. And the media is very interesting because the media's goal is not to educate investors. The media's goal is to sell, sell, sell. And they do it by um, essentially focusing on fear because guys, fear definitely sells. And you do see and you do hear about um, sponsors that lost some, um, uh, you know, some of the investors money or all of it um, foreclosures. And so you do hear it. There's a couple of companies that are out there that actually it happened to them. We're not going to um, name, you know, some of the colleagues in the industry, but the media really likes to take that and um, kind of not spin it, but really make it look a lot worse than it is. Um, there's there's all kind of magazines that are talking about um, the mass um, of foreclosures that are coming in the market. And I've been saying it for years. There will be foreclosures. Some investors are going to lose their money, but it's not going to be as significant as you think. And you can see that a lot of the um, family offices and institutions that stopped investing 18, 20 months ago are back to investing. They stopped not because they were scared, but because they thought that right now we need to wait for all the fire sales so we can buy assets 70 cents on a dollar, 50 cents on a dollar, 80 cents on a dollar. And it just hasn't happened. And it hasn't happened for two reasons. One, you have lenders that are restructuring loans, they're extending loans, they're improving the terms because no lender wants to be the one that essentially forecloses on multiple borrowers because that's, if, if you think about it, the money to loan uh, to multifamily, that, that was raised from investors as well. And they don't want to um, have that part of their business uh, being impacted. So they find they find ways around it. But also, as a as a buyer, even if a seller is willing to sell it on, you know, 80 cents on a dollar at a 15, 20% discount, you're not you're not really underwriting to the same levels that you have a year, two years, three, four years ago, because the debt is significantly different. So if I got those 15% discount three years ago, it would have been great because I could, you know, put 3% fix, 3.5% fix for the next seven, five, seven, ten, 10 years. That That's great. That is a great deal. But today I'm getting a discount on one hand, but then the lender is saying, okay, we used to, you know, give 70%, 75% LTVs, not anymore. I like to stay around 55%, maybe 60%. Interest rates obviously are not as low. So you have those two um, elements that are balancing each other out. And so you don't see a mass of deals. You don't see massive, um, you know, fire sales. And so that's just something, you know, to keep in mind. So there's definitely pain. It's not as significant. So we'll have this conversation again in January of 2025 and see if actually 2024 was a year of pain, a year of gain, or just, um calm cruise, you know, across the ocean of multifamily. We'll see.
Yeah, and, and Ellie, I, I, you, you hit on a good point, and I, I'd like to kind of expand on that a little bit because somebody recently asked me, um, they said, I, I don't understand, why don't sponsors just refinance their floating rate bridge debt into fixed rate debt? And, and you brought up the, the conversation of leverage, and, and that's what it comes down to. So it struck a chord with me because financing and, and structuring real estate investments can be one of the more complex components of the business, especially for those that invest in real estate, but don't do it on a, a daily basis. So um, I, I wanted to share an example that that what I would think oversimplifies the reason um, of this pain and, and why it's, it's generally not attainable to refinance in, in today's environment from, from bridge debt to fixed rate debt. Um, unless you acquired the asset, call it before 2019, you had a great basis, your leverage might have been 60, 65%, depending on how you structure the deal. Um, that is that is certainly more plausible. But all that said, a, a successful refinance from bridge debt to fixed rate debt really boils down to three components, net operating income, valuation, and leverage. And again, I'm going to oversimplify this. There's a lot more that, that goes into it. But the, the question most investors have is, can I execute a cash out refinance? Can I break even? Or will I need to come to the table with, with a check to cover the difference in loan proceeds? So that that's ultimately what we're looking at. Um, so I'm, I'm going to share an example. Um, so for, for those listeners that have really been asking about this, but might not necessarily um, understand the, the full picture because of the complexities that, that go with it. All right, so so the example here is in don't don't get too caught up whether you're looking at the table or the visual below. Uh, but if you're looking at the table on the left hand side, ultimately what you're looking at is 2022 numbers, 2024, and the the percentage change, and then across horizontally you can see NOI, cap rates, valuation, loan to value, and, and the resulting debt. Um, and one thing to clarify, a lot of people get caught up in cap rates. Like, what what is that? What does that mean? And it realistically just comes down to investor sentiment of its pre-tax earnings. How much are you willing to pay for a dollar in NOI? Just like a, a price to earnings multiple in, in the public markets when, when you're looking at equities is um, a 5% cap rate is, is $20 in value. So for every dollar in NOI, you're willing to pay $20 in value at a, a five cap, excuse me. And at a four cap, you're willing to pay $25 for that dollar in NOI. So think about that as, as ultimately pre-tax earnings and, and what investor sentiment is on what they would be willing to pay for future cash flows. So again, going back to this, this component is I'm going to focus more on the chart on the below is the, the gray on the left-hand side is 2022 numbers. And then in 2024, let's say it's a two-year bridge note, um, what, what the valuation and ultimately ultimate issue is um, when we're talking about this pain in market. So let's say you acquired a property in 2022 with an NOI of $2 million. Um, and at a 4% cap rate, the valuation or purchase price would be, call it $50 million, again, for simplicity. And let's say a lender is willing to lend up to 80% loan to value. A lot of it was 70 to 75, but when you factor in CapEx, it might be 80%. So you're, you're taking out $40 million in, in debt um, to fund the acquisition of $50 million. So now let, let's take another step and say, okay, well, net operating income grew 5% annually, so 10% cumulative over the two-year hold period when the note ultimately is maturing. So what, what happens is, is the operating fundamentals have, not, have, have actually grown. So keep that in mind in, in this scenario. And then on the valuation side, 
you go from a 4% cap rate to let's say the market is willing to pay a 5.5% cap for that same asset two years later. So despite NOI growing by 10%, the value has come down 20%. And then keep in mind, again, simplicity of, of not factoring in debt service coverage ratios, just looking at loan to value constraints is on the bottom section of the chart, you acquired an 80% loan to value. So you have a $40 million note that's maturing. Um, however, in if you want to refinance from bridge debt into fixed rate debt, um, a lot of the agencies are, are uh, have a maximum loan to value of 65%. So what does that mean? What that ultimately means is at, at the new valuation of $40 million, 65% loan to value for a refinance would be $26 million in loan proceeds. So you're $14 million short. So that would obviously be a cash in refinance. So that's what Ellie was essentially referring to is it, it's difficult in today's environment due to the, the cost of debt and the leverage that has changed over the last two years. So this is what Ellie's reference is when she says there might be capital calls, there might be distress. It's not operating distress. In some instances, it is. Um, however, this, this example kind of shows you that it's the capital markets that could drive these types of outcomes. And, and nobody foresaw, foresaw that coming over the last two years. Yeah, guys, this is a, a, a great, um, you know, slide. So I really encourage uh, our listeners to go to um, our YouTube uh, channel and check it out because you can really see here at an 80% LTV and many assets were able to get that, the debt, the the loan proceeds, the debt, the, the loan itself was $40 million, could be $40 million in that example. In today's market, if you're refinancing and you're at 65% LTV, which is actually a little bit on the higher end, it's only 26 million. That's how significant the Delta is and how significant the, the change in the environment today. So when a loan, if a loan is due today and you don't have the ability to extend a loan and you're forced to, um, to refinance, at a 65% LTV, assuming, of course, NOI is the same as when you purchased it, you have a problem because now you the, the loan is only going to cover $26 million. That's not even enough to repay the $40 million loan you took a couple of years ago. And assuming you paid interest only, so the principal still stayed you know, around the same number. It means also that you needed in three years, four years, two years, um, now that the loan is due, you needed to push NOI so high that an 80% loan to value would be at least equal to 65% loan to value today. And it's extremely hard, if not impossible to do. And so what happens, that's what Ryan is referring to when he's saying essentially that there's some distress, you know, in the, on the operational side, meaning lower um, NOI, uh, net operating income, lower occupancy, but some assets actually increased in NOI, but because the loan to value, there's there's a delta of you know 15 to 25%, then you need to repay the original loan that is now due because it's a short-term bridge, but now the proceeds from the new loan is not enough to cover. You may need to come out, you know, come with, you know, a million to five, 10, 20, $25 million in order to, re, you know, repay the old loan um, and place new debt. So 
this is a great um, example. The numbers here are very, very easy to follow. And this is a really, really good, um, you know, slide for anyone, sponsors or, you know, passive investors who want to understand a little bit more why, you know, sponsors are not refinancing and to understand, kind of evaluate the risk um, in the investments that they're involved with. Um, and maybe now, actually, it's a it's a good um, segue to our break um, about, um, you know, to talk a little bit about um, the um, the initiatives that we have um, at Blue Lake, in, where we're going to talk about those things um, exactly to make sure that investors are more informed and more sophisticated and understand what's going on today, because it can be scary if you don't have knowledge, if you cannot really assess the risks. So uh, Jeanette, I'll take you, uh, I'll let you take it from here. Um, and then we're going to transition from talking about the pain to talking about the gains. I shared my goals with my friends and family, well, over two decades ago. Um, one thing that I always heard was that I'm aiming too high, that I have too big of dreams, that I'm going to crash and burn. And I never understood that. I never understood why everyone around me was thinking too small. I always wanted to um, reach the stars and beyond. I actually had saying um, that the sky is not the limit. It's just plan B because I was aiming to reach much higher than the sky. Fast forward to today, I want to share with you how I did it. This is not get rich quick. I don't believe in it. It took me a while to get here with hard work, with dedication, um, and with a lot of grit. And so I took all that knowledge and I packaged it in one easy to read book. This book is, it's not filled with slogan or feel good, um, you know, kind of uh, paragraphs, but it's it's really with actionable, really easy to follow advice that you can implement, um, you know, tomorrow. To get a limited time opportunity to access this guide, which I call the ultimate guide for creating and preserving your wealth, visit our website at blake-capital.com. Okay, great. So now that we've talked about, you know, a lot of pain that we, you know, had, had talked about, it's the, the elephant in the room and the media and all the negative things. Now let's talk about why investors are still being optimistic and are eager and looking for new deals. So Ryan, tell us what the potential gains are that 2024 holds for us. Yeah, there's quite a few. So to, to kick off on the acquisition front, we're we're expecting we're experiencing a, a price correction. Uh, so assets are trading at a discount to replacement cost in in roughly 20, 25% below peak values in 2022. And, and just for example, this week we're we're offering on um, a deal in Raleigh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And that asset is at below 200 a door. They're building for 225, give or take. And um, one of our competitors, actually the most direct comparable product is another um, mid 2000 vintage deal, similar rent structure, similar NOI margins. Um, and that deal traded for 276 a door, which is what we're underwriting at exit. So, so just goes to show um, the, the basis in which we can buy deals at today and, and other investors, what they can look at. And if, if you're a long-term player, which, which most people are in the real estate space, um, and you you structure the deal accordingly, you can buy a great asset at, at today's pricing. Um, 
And if you buy correctly, I mean, you can buy positive leverage or a clear path to positive leverage in year one. So as I mentioned, just uh, I guess I'll, I'll kind of stick to this deal. Um, it, it's a 575 cap where um, and if you buy correctly, I mean, you can buy positive leverage or a clear path to positive leverage in year one. So as I mentioned, just uh, I guess I'll, I'll kind of stick to this deal. Um, it, it's a 575 cap where we're underwriting to almost a six and a quarter, six and a quarter exit. Um, in our interest rates, we, we've got a higher loan sizing than we expected from our lender, um, which, which is a sub 575 rate all in because of the mission driven affordability. So um, it, it's it's a going in yield right off the bat and it's got clear value add potential. Um, but again, I'm, I'm not going to get too ahead of myself because we still have a long way to go with this one. But um Essentially, what, I, what I'm comparing to is in 2021 and 2022, it was incredibly competitive because there was there was so much liquidity and multifamily investments and were in such high demand. Uh, borrowing costs were historically low and pro formas um, were, were aggressively underwritten, which resulted in bidding wars against several groups. So when, when you look at a bid sheet in 20, 2021, 2022, they were filled with potential buyers, all willing to pay an extra dollar to win the deal because that that's just that that was the condition at the time. Um, so assets were trading above whisper, and, and now in the reciprocal, um, it's the exact opposite. It's it's hard to see a bid that's under 10% um, below the bid ask spread. So that that's how wide it's it's essentially inverted um in 2024 so it's it's a great spot to be in and we, we've speaking spoken with developers and other buyers that just they take 10 percent right off the the whisper just as just as a starting point um so again what essentially what i'm alluding to is is the basis opportunity and in many seasoned real estate professionals know it's 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 predominantly at the buy and if you can buy a great basis in a strong market with um favorable demos you're you're, you're going to be in a great spot and um, and what's interesting in 2024 as well is that all buyers are dealing with the same financing structure now for the most part, where agency lenders are pretty much the only game in town. Um, underwriting assumptions, loan proceeds, and return profiles are, are nearly identical for, for what un groups are underwriting. So um, it, it brings us a new challenge to win deals, but uh, there is a competitive advantage to to in today's capital market environment. And, and really what that comes down to is surety of closing. We talk about this all the time and we can't emphasize it enough. Um, it is being a reputable buyer with equity identified significantly increases your chance of, of winning a deal today. Um, and most people will say, well, what, what is a reputable buyer? What, what does that mean? Um, and it boils down to a few different components. So proven execution for one, have you closed deals recently? Are you in the market or are you just going on the bid sheet being competitive, but um, you're not a serious buyer? And that's what brokers are trying to filter out right now. So have you bought a deal in this market before? How intimate are you with the location and the operating structure? Um, have you transacted with the listing broker or, or the seller in the past? That That's a, a huge advantage because if they had a great experience with you, um, being at a high priority of, of making sure deals are closing, that that's essentially top of mind for sellers. So um, another question is is a big one is, have you retraded a deal? I, we got an off-market opportunity uh, passed over to us yesterday, and uh, the broker couldn't emphasize enough is, is they will not transact with somebody who's retraded. They actually have a blacklist of groups. It doesn't matter what you're bidding. They just, they, they won't even consider it. If they see you on the bid sheet, don't, don't even don't. And the broker was upfront. He was very transparent. Not, not that we've ever done that or, or we ever would. Um, but it, 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 
I was asking a lot of follow-up questions because there were limited financials at the time, given the off-market nature of the deal. Um, and, and I said, I apologize for asking so many things up front because this isn't what we normally do when we have more information. Um, and that's when he rebuttaled and said, it, and I appreciate the questions because um, I'd rather get all the information out now versus finding out something later um, and having to retrade. And that's how the conversation came up. But and Ryan, can uh, you just explain for the listeners what a retrade is in case someone's not familiar with that term? Because I think it's more internal lingo, but it is interesting for people to understand what a retrade is and why it can really have a negative impact on someone's reputation in the industry. Yeah, I, I, I was I stopped myself before answering that question because I was going to go name a sponsor and say, go talk to them. They're, they're famous at it. But, <laughs> um, not, yeah, not going yeah, not, not to do it. But um a retrade is ultimately when, okay, say initial offers are due. Um, and let's say you bid 50 million and you're awarded the best and final and you, you're going up against three other groups and you, you move up to 51 million. Um, and then you're awarded the deal, you go under contract. And then after due diligence, you're on site. Um, you start realizing, oh, you know what? Maybe I didn't budget enough for um, exterior paint or roof or, or CapEx or whatever the case may be. And then you turn around to the seller and the broker and say, you know, I know I my, we were awarded at 51, um, but I have to I have to transact at my initial offer of 50. So it's ultimately going under contract for, for a specific price and then ultimately coming back in, in what they call retrading is offering a different price. I mean, I guess you, nobody's ever, for, at least I'm concerned, and as far as I'm concerned, retraded higher. It's, it's always lower. I'd say 99% of the time, I can't imagine there was a time where somebody's it was already awarded the deal and says, I'm willing to pay you more. Um, but that that's the definition of a retrade is, is and, and it really impacts the integrity of the firm and your reputation. So that's what I mean about being a, a reputable buyer in today's environment. Now, that and was a very um, neat and classic description of what retrade is. Let me tell you how retrade really feels like um, <laughs> as someone who, who you know, bought and sold um, assets across the U.S., so in some cases it happens like exactly like Ryan described, you have the best intentions to close and something came up that you did not know moving forward. And it's significant enough to impact, um, you know, how the deal underwrites and you say, you know what, I know I said, you know, the, the offer was 51. I need to revert back to 50 or 50.7 or whatever that is. Um, however, there's some groups out there. Some of them are known to be doing that. Some of them are less known to be doing that. Um, where it's a strategy to win deals, and this is how sometimes some groups are playing dirty. They know what pricing you want as a seller. So let's say the entire market is at fifty million, meaning everyone who underwrites more or less, you know, make an offer at around fifty million. But they know that the the seller is actually aiming for 52 or maybe the sellers is, you know understands and accepts the fact that yeah the, the asset's going to be sold for 50 million they go ahead in order to win the deal intentionally inflate their offer and they say it's 53 million or 52 million because they know it's going to be very hard for the seller to 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 you know not award a deal to them then once they get a deal under contract, meaning both parties signed the purchase and sellers agreement, and then there's usually a 30-day due diligence period that starts, they find all kinds of things during due diligence. Now, you have to understand, 
there's always things that come up during the diligence. No asset, even if they just the the uh, seller just completed building a house, there are always going to be small things that you're going to find. Think about a house that you recently bought, or maybe a few years ago. Was it a hundred percent perfect? No, something was. You know, the 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 handle was falling off. You know, in this room, and and maybe there was a little bit of a leak here. There's always something. They come up with a laundry list of issues and say, well. The asset is not worth 53 million. It's actually worth 49 or 50 or 50.3, whatever that number is. Their strategy is by the time they're going to come back to you and say, we want to retrade, that you are already invested in it. You've paid your attorneys and they don't take any discounts or waive their fees if you don't close the deal. And you're committed to it. You do not want to go back to the market and and try and you know sell it so many sellers say uh you know what we'll take a two million dollar haircut let's just move on and close the deal and these the guys that were awarded they'll actually um on, on a on a false premise that they will buy it at a much higher price actually buy it at the price that they really wanted to buy it for and that is why there's that list, which I didn't know actually until now, which is great to know because I want to know who are the retraders are. I, I don't, you know, I don't want to retrade and I don't want to sell it to a retrader. So it's always good to know it's a dirty tactic. I, you know, I don't like it. I do not play dirty. And and I think it's great that they're starting to share this information um, in the industry because it, it just, it hurts everyone, you know, today and maybe it was more tolerable you know, more tolerable three, four, five years ago when you made, so in, so as a seller, instead of making 35% IR, you would make 32% IR. That's still a home run. That's still a very nice exit. Today, it could be the, the difference between 15 and 9% IR. And then you don't have a, you don't have a deal. And many brokers are concerned that if they're going to be retraders, if the deal is going to be, be awarded to a retrader, then the seller is going to say, you know what, I'm not selling. I'll pay my attorneys their 200k, 100,000 dollar, you know, uh, fee, but I'm not selling because I don't. So, sometimes it, it's even the the difference between um, a profitable deal and a losing deal. So just wanted to say yeah. that, and I, I, I didn't, I didn't intend to take to take the 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 say, but it's, it's it's something that is is close to, you know, um, it's something that I I'm, um, I was always almost burnt. Uh, in the past with, you know, selling uh, an asset to someone who started making noises um, and, 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 and kind of uh, indicating that they might want to retrade. Um, and we had a very, very tough conversation. And so it did happen at the end, but it's something that I'm definitely, um, definitely happy to hear that, that there are some steps being done in the market to, to prevent this phenomenon from happening. Now, wait, I'm confused. And I know that some investors right now are, are like, yes, I agree with Jeanette. They already know what I'm going to say. So explain to me, though, since I'm never on this side of the, the table, um, you know, when it comes to acquisitions and whatnot, to me, it, it makes sense. To me, it seems like it's being responsible for their investors. And if they do get in and identify a bunch of issues, it would only be 
part of their fiduciary responsibility for their investors to be like, hey, bro, there's a problem with this, 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 this. This is not as, you know, so to me, it makes sense that they would come in and negotiate that way if that was not necessarily their strategy. But the, the, the fact of the matter was there are issues and it does make it less now. So where's the push pull or the balance between acting in, you know, the best interest of your investors versus, you know, using this kind of, you know, shady retrading technique? Like, it, it depends how, it depends what is um, the issues that we're facing. If half the property was burned down to the ground, and you think it's going to be an issue getting the money from insurance and the seller's not cooperating, you absolutely have, regardless, you have, you know, responsibility to your investors to say, hey, this is not, you know, this is not something we want to move forward with. Sometimes, and there are issues with every asset, but that's why you need to build into your underwriting CAPEX and deferred maintenance budget. And that budget is supposed to cover all those leaks and, um, you know, the the roof, the issues with the roof that you want, you know, if you want to um, fix the roof and all kinds of things that you need to fix at the property. Nobody is expected or, th or thinks that they can buy a perfect asset. It does not happen. The question is yeah. the the the, the um, dirty kind of, and I keep using that word. There's no other word for it. Um, the strategy comes from inflating information as if they didn't know it and they didn't price it. And many times the brokers are doing a good job by taking major issues that are known to them before they take the asset to um, to market, and they say, "Listen, this is the asset." These are the main issues that you need to know that you need to fix because they know that it's going to be revealed during due diligence and then they're risking, you know, losing their, um, uh, losing the deal. So we're not talking about something significant. We're talking about, you know, all kinds of small things that should be covered, you know, by uh, a healthy, um, you know, deferred maintenance budget. And they use it as an excuse, essentially, to lower the um the bid and also you know the, the these groups are known to to do that so one of them actually said it out loud one of the syndicators actually said that's how i get deals i give them whatever number they want and then you know and then we we re we renegotiate so if you do it once, twice, three times, four times, you know that this you're actually hurting investors because you're using their money to fly out, to see assets, to uh, hire attorneys, knowing that this may not work. And so you're actually doing exactly the, the opposite. So I guess the bottom line is that it depends on how big the issue is and what the intention is, um, you know, from from day one. Yeah, and I'll close the loop here. So, Jeanette, it, when when Ellie mentions if if there's a material issue with the property, we're talking structurally. So, let's say there's a crack in the foundation, something like that. It, it doesn't warrant grounds for a retrade. That's when you just walk away from. You you don't want to deal with that to begin with, so you avoid the retrade entirely. But um, I have come across a deal. It was a 2000 vintage product, or excuse me, a 2015 vintage product um, that the roofing was done incorrectly on all 18 buildings. 
So it was going to cost us two and a half, three million dollars in in capex to replace the roofing on a on a, a property that was only five years old at the time. Um, that is a significant issue because you're not going to get paid for that. That's a sunk cost. That's going to go into the deal, which in a 2015 vintage deal, you you shouldn't be budgeting that kind of money for capex items. However. If you buy a 25 year old property um, and you know during the the underwriting the due diligence that it, they're original roofs and you don't have a, a budget for replacement, that's your fault. And, and same thing, there was a deal in Savannah we looked at in early 2023 um, that the the group that was awarded the deal had a 500 per unit insurance number and it was in a flood zone. That it just doesn't make sense. Um, so, I mean, that's unintentional that that's when you're building into the models and they had very aggressive underwrite or, or excuse me, debt assumptions. Um, and this is when the treasuries were were on the move. So they didn't build in cushions. So not only did they have a, a, a horrible insurance number, which was actually almost triple um, what they initially underwrote, but they also had a, a debt problem where their returns were significantly impacted, awarded the deal and had to walk away. I mean, they were trying to retrade, but the differential was so large, it went back into the market. So just, just to close the loop there, it, it's, okay. I, I know Jeanette's got her hat on saying, wait a second, I thought you were a fiduciary and you're doing what's best for us. And um, in reality, that that can be true, but at the same time, intentional retrades can be problematic. Well, so, it, makes that's, that's what, it makes sense. Because when I, well, it makes a lot of sense, actually, because the I think the important takeaway for me in that is that you want to make sure you're working with a group that's professional and experienced enough to know how to underwrite to begin with, to be able to anticipate what that appropriate budget should or should not be. So it, it makes a lot of sense, um, you know, but it is interesting. I've never thought about it from the other side until today. Yeah. And it's good that you're asking this question because what you're thinking other investors, um, you know, maybe thinking and asking themselves. So you're always, you know, their voice. And, and that's the beauty in this, um, you know, trio panel. Um, Ryan is is giving is bringing the um, perspective from the acquisition side. You're giving us, you know, essentially the investor's voice um, and sentiment. And I'm talking about strategy, you know, what what I see in the market, generally speaking, um, you know, as an owner uh, and what is going to motivate us to make any changes. So we have we have, you know, I think a, a nice rhythm. Um, Ryan, do you want to do you want to close the loop on that? Um you know, on the discussion on, you know, the 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 gains uh, in the market today? Yeah, as kind of a, just a recap, as we talked about, it, it's a basis, it's a basis market. It's 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 certainly a buyer's market for, for deals that are that make sense. Um, and you want to be a reputable buyer. If, if you have if you operate with integrity, you will have a competitive advantage in today's environment. You will buy a great deal at a great basis. And, and the fundamentals will, will be strong for the next five to 10 years. And, and you'll do just fine just for the basis play. Because like I said, in, in 2009, 2010, uh, we're seeing those deals come to market right now and, and they can sell because of the basis they bought it at. They can do whatever they want. That's discretionary capital. Um, so that's the biggest thing. And, and sellers just want surety of closing. So if you can 
if you can entertain um, offers that that make the seller feel comfortable, understanding what their needs are, um, you're going to be in a great spot. And, and can the seller trust you to have the capital um, and financing capability at the closing table? That's that's predominantly um, a, a major competitive advantage in, in today's market, and we believe is going to hold true through the rest of this year as as groups start to recalibrate um, and, and rebalance their portfolios. All right, guys. So there you have it. Um, the pains and gains of investing in multifamily slash real estate uh, in today's market. Um, I'm Ellie Perlman, founder and CEO of Blue Lake. And uh, in case you forgot, um, I was uh, we were having a great conversation today with Jeanette. Um, and Ryan from um, our company, from our firm. If you want to talk to us about investing um, with us, um, you can reach out to us. Jeanette, I'm going to hand it over to you to uh, let everyone know how they can uh, connect with us. Yeah, for sure. So uh, you can always find information about us at our website, which is bluelake-capital.com. But before we go, I do want to say that I'd like to give a little shout out to a couple of reviews uh, that have been left for the show recently. Uh, so I wanted to just kind of say thank you to whoever uh, you know, actually uh, was the person that posted this. Uh, it looks like his name is Brad. Brad said, and I quote, Ellie is a gifted podcaster with a knack for finding the most interesting and relevant strategies. Her podcast is always informative, and I always learn something new. I highly recommend it to anyone who is looking for a well-produced and engaging podcast. So Brad, thank you very much for leaving that review for us. I have one more that I'm going to share, which is uh, comes to us from uh, somebody that says Invest with Spark is the name on the account that I see. Uh the review says Jeanette does, and this is so weird because I'm reading it about myself. So like, I don't know, just go with it. Uh, Jeanette does a wonderful job eliciting insights and knowledge from her guest about all aspects of multifamily investment. So if you are looking to start investing in apartment communities or take your skill set to the next level, Ready to Scale is a must listen podcast. So thank you guys very much for those reviews. We actually just came out in some list that had like the top 100 uh, real estate investing podcast, and we were number 11. So I'm uh, I'm pretty happy about that. Uh, so please don't forget to like, rate, and review the show. We really do read them. We really do appreciate them. And we appreciate you guys uh, tuning in today. Uh, please let us know in the comments also if there's anything else you'd like to hear about. In the meantime, Ellie, do you want to go ahead and sign off or would you like me to do it? You do it. All right. Thank you. Be bold, be strong, and keep moving forward. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.